I want to call your attention this morning to the book of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and um, looking at verses uh, 17 through 25. I believe that these days that we live in, when there's so much uncertainty in our our world and there's so much unrest, I do believe that, that these are uh, the days whenever the church is going to see great revival. In fact, we just got a report that five uh, people received the Holy Ghost last night in the prison ministry in Orlando. So people are getting the Holy Ghost. People are being saved all over. And, of course, we have a group that's leaving uh, tomorrow. Uh, We have some 30 people that will uh, end up joining us in Madagascar for a crusade in Durban, South Africa, and then uh, in Madagascar, and we're believing for great things. But... Uh, this is a this is a time, and it's a it's a season for the church that's not unlike the New Testament church that we read about in the Book of Acts. But God is uh, He's designed the church to thrive in troubled times, and I think sometimes as the people of God we have to be careful that we are not getting most of our information and information affects your emotions. We have to make sure that we're not getting the majority of it from the world rather than from God. We saw this during that whole COVID season where fear was so rampant. It's because people were watching the news every day instead of praying every day. And when you're, when you're digesting uh, the voices of a secular culture, you're not going to necessarily be in step with what God's doing. Because many times these forces are, uh, they're, they're opposed. And so we have to, as the church, make sure that our ears are inclined to what thus saith the Spirit, what thus saith the Lord. And uh, this is exactly what the disciples in the New Testament church had to do, because if they were to just listen to um, their peers that were not uh, Christian converts, they, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, they would have thrown their hands up in the air. I mean, they were under constant threat of their life on a daily basis. But let's read some of this and see if we can unpack uh, this in the next few minutes that we have together. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him which is the sect of the Sadducees. And this is kind of like the, the religious rulers of the day. But you, you have to understand that the religious rulers were also the, the, the civic leaders as well. They, it was much different than it is now with separation of church and state. They were, it, it, it sort of mixed together. And uh, Judaism, of course, was mixed in with the nationality of the Jews. And so they, uh, even though they were under Roman rule, Uh, which was another whole layer of adversity. But even though they were under Roman rule, the Romans, they didn't really want to get involved in sort of the day-to-day civil matters. They just kind of kept watch over the nation as a whole, basically guarding uh, their revenue stream. Didn't want that to be upset. They had conquered them, and so they they wanted to keep that, uh, that position. But... 
they allowed the, the, the Jews and, and, and by default the religious leaders to really uh, be the, uh, the authority, the civil authorities as well. And so um, this scene in Acts 5 describes that. The high priest rose up, all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And of course, this was for their, their faith, and not only what they believed, but that they were preaching and teaching it. Verse 19, But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. So the angel doesn't say, we're going to spring you out of jail, and then we want you guys to lay low for seven, ten days till the heat, you know, subsides. No, we want you to go straight to the temple, which is the most visible area. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So this crowd doesn't even know yet that they're not in the prison. They're in the temple. This crowd is not going to church anymore, obviously, because none of them have been to the temple. To hear that these disciples are now in the temple. They still think they're in prison. So they called for the guards to bring them. Verse 22. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told. They said, they're not in there. And here's what they say. The prison we found truly shut with all safety and the keepers standing without before the doors. Guards are there. The cells are locked. You know, there's been no foul play that we can see. But when we had opened, we found no man therein within. There's nobody there. Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then they start worrying about damage control. How in the world are we going to explain this? We got, you know, these guys running around saying Jesus, you know, came up out of his tomb that was sealed that had guards. Now, the messengers of that story have pulled some sort of similar trick because the guards are there, the doors are locked, and they're not there. Then came one and told them, and just this whole scene is just funny in my mind. Then came one and told them, saying, I mean, people are just coming in to this Senate, this Sanhedrin, these, you know, politicians, and they got all these different reports. Then here comes one saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I mean, it's like a David Copperfield show. You were supposed to be here, now you're over there. How did that happen? I got actually pulled into a David Copperfield show one time, and he was he had this big trick, and and uh, he was making people disappear, and I got pulled out of the audience. And so when I, I went up on the stage, they said, are you a reporter? And I said, no. And they said, are you a magician? And I said, no. So they said, okay. So they, they put me along with like 12 other people, and they gave us flashlights, and they put us in this like big cage thing with a big sheet over the top of it on the stage. And what the, the trick is that they you associate, if you're in the audience, you associate the people with the light. And so then they ushered us out the back, but they had 
others that were still had the flashlights going inside this cage with a bed sheet kind of thing over it. So if you're in the audience looking at it, you've seen people go in with flashlights. You assume when the lights are still flashing around that the people are still in there. That's the delusion. That's the illusion. And But meanwhile, we're being ushered out of the back and saying, run, 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 run. And we're running and we run around off the stage down through the kitchen and all back around. And, and they come and they all wait. And we come and they bring us into the back of this this whole theater deal. And they pull the bed sheet and say, they're not there anymore. And everybody goes, <gasps> and they say, they're in the back. And they've given us our lights back, our flashlights back. So we're in the back and we all stand back there and shine our flashlights. And people are like, they were just there. How did they get there? They didn't know we ran through the kitchen. So I'm thinking of that as I'm, as I'm reading this story. They're like, they're not there. We're not sure how they disappeared. And then somebody else comes and says, we found them. They're in the temple teaching the people. I, I want to uh, talk for a few moments on this subject. Um, deliverance in disguise. Deliverance in disguise. You know, sometimes things are not always as they appear. And, you know, since we're getting close to this season, um, let me just talk about this for just a moment because it, it reminds me of something. You know, when I was a kid, which now is getting to be further and further away, we used to do trick-or-treating on October 31st, and it was no big deal. We would dress up in disguise and, you know, we wanted to be an astronaut. That was usually a big one because we were here on the Space Coast and they were shooting people off to the moon. Um, or, you know, we wanted to be a fireman. And it was, I think, um, maybe I'm naive because I was a kid, but it all seemed pretty innocent. It wasn't all this monster stuff and all this devil stuff like it is now. I think the, the evil elements of our world have sort of taken this tradition and turned it into some sinister event now that that Christians can hardly even participate in, in good faith. So we as a church, we've had to, for the past 20 years, we've had to have alternate activities like trunk or treat or harvest parties and all this because it's gotten so crazy and bizarre. But um, because we don't really participate in all this, I try to be out of my house on October 31st. Somebody else feels the same way. Uh, I don't. I don't want to participate uh, in the um, in the trick or treating stuff with kids coming to the door dressed up like creepy monsters or whatever. So I usually am gone, or I turn off all the lights and pretend I'm not at home. <laughs> but a few years ago, the 31st of October was on a Sunday night. And uh, I was trying to get to church. I think we were doing some sort of uh, harvest party or something. And uh, I was trying to get ready to come, and kids kept coming to the door for candy. And I had turned off all the lights, and I had tried to stay real quiet. And uh, I was sort of, you know, getting ready with, like, just the light on my phone. And um, it's kind of hard, you know, when there's cars in the driveway. I, I had a bag of Tootsie Rolls as a backup, just in case. And it's a good thing I did because 
they, they would ring the doorbell like every 40 seconds. And I don't know, all these, all these kids come from I don't know where. I never see them. Then all of a sudden, there's just hundreds of them. And uh, so, and there's, they're not all kids. There's some of them like with a full beard, like a real beard, walking around and trick-or-treating and then looking all around your house and saying, oh, this is a nice, I feel like they're kind of like checking out the place, you know? So I don't, I try not to even participate. And um, so I, I was doing that this one night, this has been a few years ago, and I was, um, I was pretending no one was there, but I had to go out of the house to get to the car, you know, to get to the, in the automobile to drive down here. So when I went out the door, there were like 10 kids just standing there in the driveway waiting for me. And I turned around and I, I knew I couldn't, you know, shake them. So I, I came back in and found that one bag of Tootsie Rolls. And I went in there and I was giving them this bag of Tootsie Rolls. And, and the kids said, we knew you were in there. <laughs> they said, we just decided to wait for you. One little tiny, tiny kid was dressed up like a monster. And he, he told me what kind of monster it was. And in reality, he, he seemed like a, he seemed like a nice kid, but he had taken on the demeanor of this monster. One kid was dressed up like a policeman. And I said, are you a policeman? And he said, yes. And I said, are you going to be a policeman when you uh, grow up? And he said, yes, I want to be a policeman so I can carry a submachine gun. Yeah, this is, this is what we have running around our neighborhoods. And that little story reminded me of a time a few years ago when I pulled into a convenience store and there were about 10 police cars and a bunch of uniforms that were gathered around the counter and I wondered what had happened. I thought maybe the place had been robbed. They had a suspect. I didn't know they were getting a description, fingerprints. I didn't know what it was. But I jumped out of my car to go check it out because I'm drawn to that kind of stuff. And uh, so I went in there. When I got inside, it sounded like a party was going on. And I thought, oh, this is totally different than what I thought it was going to be. Apparently, one of the policemen had bought a lottery ticket and had won some money. And they were thanking the clerk, and they were having a big time, and it was a big celebration. I mean, from the outside, you would have thought that a terrible crime had just occurred, and there was an investigation. When you got inside, everybody was having a big time because somebody had hit the lottery. I, I couldn't help but think of those stories when I, when I read this text because, you know, some things, it, it may look like business as usual, but it's totally different. And this is the way God works. We have to be careful sometimes that we don't get our, our spiritual signals based on culture and what's coming to us through the airways and radio and television and social media, all this podcast, everything that's in our culture now. It, it gives us sometimes, I think, an illusion of what really is happening with God's plan and with God's will and with his timing. When we look at this story in Acts 5, everything looks like business as usual down at the jailhouse. The guards are on duty. The locks are all secure. No evidence of any disturbance. 
no indication of foul play. But when they open the door, Peter and John have vanished. The first thing I want to bring out to you is this point, and we'll illustrate it through different uh, biblical passages. But sometimes the Lord brings a blessing behind the disguise of business as usual. He doesn't give any indication that anything supernatural has happened. Everything is in place. Everything looks normal. But behind the scenes, he's brewing up a blessing. Things are happening. I, uh, I, I, I've learned that sometimes you can have a relationship with someone and it can just seem like a business relationship or it's just uh, it's a, a relationship with a person that you knew at school or you know at work or, or someone that's part of your neighborhood or what, whatever. It's just it's not somebody that you, you know necessarily from the church. It's just someone that you know uh, in life. And so you can have like a business relationship and, you, and your conversations can be uh, very cordial. But there comes a time whenever uh, these people will ask questions. This is a lot what's happening right now. You may just have a, a, a business relationship with someone. But if they find out that you're a Christian, if they find out that you're a born-again believer, they'll start asking you questions. Because there is this hunger. When the world gets unstable, people are drawn to the stability of this rock Christ Jesus. And there is a blessing behind what appears to be uh, business uh, as usual. And uh, I, I'm reminded of a situation I, I, uh, I had with a friend of mine who I, I went to, I was raised here, of course, in this area and went to O'Galley High School, Central Junior High, Harbor City Elementary, if we go all the way back. Harbor City Elementary on Sarno Road, what used to be Central behind... Um, what used to be J.M. Fields. Boy, I'm telling you, I'm going to say a lot. Used to be a lot of times in this story. And and then O'Galley High School. So the reason we wanted to go to O'Galley High School is because it was the only high school that had air conditioning back then. There was only O'Galley High School and Melbourne High School. There wasn't all this stuff down here. And uh, so Melbourne High School didn't have air conditioning. O'Galley High School did have air conditioning. So uh, I don't know how, but my parents got me into O'Galley High School. So, uh, you know, having gone through that, I, be I became friends with people. You know, I went to public school and and so forth. And one of my friends in O'Galley High School went on to become a uh, professional baseball player, Tim Wakefield. And uh, played, I think, for, then went and played for Florida Tech, and he was a knuckleballer. And when he finally got into the big leagues, he, uh, he sent us tickets. His very first game was going to be down in Miami, and he sent us like five or, six, uh, five or six tickets. I think he was pitching for the Pittsburgh Pirates, if I'm not mistaken. They were going to play the Marlins. And uh, so... He got his ticket. So our friends from school, we all went down there to see Tim throw his first game. And it's, it's, it's so sad. I'm jumping ahead now, but he died just a few days ago. This is kind of why he's in my mind right now. But he did a lot of good for this area. Gave, donated a bunch of money to, to, uh, uh, Florida Tech and, and then also opened up, uh, a school for autism. And just, he's just a great guy. But, uh, he passed away, I think, with a battle of cancer. But, um, so we all, we all went down there. Now, I don't know if you know anything about a knuckleball pitcher, but the knuckleball is a very unique pitch, and it's so unique, only a few people can throw it, 
And it's not necessarily arm strength. It's being able to control. They throw the ball in such a way, they almost push it. It doesn't spin. And because the ball doesn't have like a corkscrew spin, it doesn't come in, you know, like a traditional pitch would. It moves all around like this. It's almost impossible to hit whenever the knuckleball is really on. But I think he was really fired up. It was his first game in the majors. And so we were like almost on the field. Wayne Heisinger, I think, owned the the uh, Marlins back then. And I remember he was sitting right over here next to us. So here's uh, Tim's friends from high school. We're all down here at this game. And he, I think he was too excited because he was throwing the knuckleball, but it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. It was just going straight in like a missile. And he gave up six runs in the first inning. And they pulled him. I mean, here's all of his friends from high school. They pulled him out of the game, his first game in the majors. They didn't, he didn't even get through the inning. He got like maybe one out, and they gave up so many runs, they just pulled him out. And uh, so after it was over, uh, he uh, he called us. We were driving back and said, man, I'm so sorry, guys. And, but, well, he went on to be a successful pitcher, pitched for the Red Sox, and whatever he had to do, he got control of that knuckleball. But what I remembered is that we just thought we were friends with this guy who was in the majors now, and this was a great story. Well... Several days after that, because of the, you know, people go through different stations in life where they become hungry for the Lord. And um, I remember that we touched base maybe, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 days. It was a couple of weeks after that game. And uh, he said, you know, I know you're a Christian. He started talking to me about the Lord. I think he was at a place where he really needed some divine intervention. We can use the lingo that they use out there. And uh, he started telling me about some of his challenges and whatnot. And we talked a long time about the Lord. Now, I had always thought it was just a business-as-usual relationship. But when a person knows that you have a walk with God, at certain times, they're going to activate that and start talking to you about the Lord. That's why, you know, you've got to always be ready to give someone some information about that. We, we talked a few years after that, even even got a chance to talk about uh, the Holy Ghost, and uh, it, it, it was it was an amazing conversation. But people that you would not think are hungry for God are hungry for God. They are, and you never know what God is doing behind the scenes. Sometimes, uh, when the Lord uh, delivers, He sends a lot of signs. When when Paul and Silas were delivered in Acts chapter sixteen from prison. It was a lot different than this story that we read in our text in Acts 5. In Acts 16, there's an earthquake. Chains are popping off. Soldiers trying to fall on their own sword, trying to take their own life. They, Paul and Silas have a Bible study with the jailer. The whole place is turned upside down. And sometimes when people receive the Holy Ghost, they fall out. They talk in tongues all night. They laugh. They shout. It's like an earthquake has hit. But I've seen others get, get you know, Holy Ghost speaking tongues real soft for like 10 seconds. And then live for God for 50 years. You know, I remember when Sister Esther Petty got the Holy Ghost uh, a couple of years ago. <laughs> I don't want her to get mad at me. <laughs> and it wasn't like, you know, she threw chairs all around and flung all of her bobby pins out and all that of her hairdo. Back in the old days, boy, we I remember as a kid, we'd, have, we'd hide down under the pew because they'd have a shout down service and... And the hairdos were real high, and they had like a thousand bobby pins in them. And the bobby pins would come out like shrapnel. And they'd spin and... 
And we would hide under the pew and hope not to get hit. But there were other people. I remember when Sister Betty got the Holy Ghost. Well, isn't that right, Sister Betty? It was just real, just very quiet. And, and I mean, obviously, she got an incredible experience. She's stuck all these years later. You know, she's still been about, what, 70, 80 years ago, Sister Betty? <laughs> so, you know, God does things differently. Sometimes, you know, he may, he may deliver and it's very boisterous and it's all kind of signs and confirmation. And then sometimes he just gives you a peace in your heart. And you know that God has done something great. I've seen people get healed and it was like a bomb went off. Like electricity running down their spine, a freedom that flowed like the Nile River. And other times it's just a little prayer. I remember my grandfather uh, telling me about how he was delivered from my dad's dad, how he was delivered from nicotine. He had smoked cigarettes ever since he was a boy. And, uh, of course, my father had gotten the Holy Ghost at 16. He went to Bible school and came back and became assistant pastor down in the Miami area. And my grandfather was in construction and all of that. I'll never forget my grandfather telling me this story because he said, son, he said, I didn't believe in women preachers. And I was like, you didn't believe in women preachers, granddad? He goes, nope. You know, this was a long time ago, son, and we didn't believe women preachers. And he said, there was a woman evangelist by the name of Willie Johnson, and she came to preach a revival, Brother Rooks, where your dad was assistant pastor, and your dad invited me to the revival. And he said, she was a lady. He knew I didn't believe in lady preachers. And he said, but I went anyhow because my son was so excited about the revival. His son, my dad. And uh, he said, well, I'm sitting there. He said, I don't know if you all know the stories about Willie Johnson, but she was quite an evangelist and, and uh, was using the gifts of the Spirit. And so in the, middle, <laughs> in the middle of her message, she calls out my granddad. And she said, you don't believe in women preachers. And you're struggling with a nicotine habit. And God's going to deliver you and he's going to use me as a sign that God can use anybody. I mean, she just read his whole mail. And my granddad said, I'm just sitting there in the pew trying to hide, trying to blend in with the crowd. And he said, well, you, she said, come forward. He said, well, I didn't have any choice. I had to come forward after she told me all. So he said, I came forward. And uh, he said, she said, I'm going to put my hands on your head. And she explained to me what was going to happen. She said this horrible, bitter taste was going to come up out of my stomach. And it was going to come up and come up out of my throat and come out of my mouth. And that I would never desire a cigarette again. He said it was so extravagant. I didn't know whether to believe it or not. But he said I was there in front of everybody and I was at the altar area. So he said uh, she told me to raise my hands. I did. He said she put her hand on my head and she started praying. And exactly what she said would happen happened. He said, I had this horrible, bitter taste that just come up out of my stomach. And he said, it just came up and came up in my throat. And my granddad, this is my granddad telling his grandson. And he said, I just belched really loud. I was like, granddad, at the altar? He said, it, I couldn't control it. It just came right out. And he said, boy, he said, I didn't know what had happened. I started jumping and shouting and dancing around, getting the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues again. And he said... I never, ever smoked another cigarette. Never had a desire from that day forward. And sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's a, it's very uh, visible and extravagant. And then other times, like at the winds conference, we were just at the end of a, a service. I don't even remember what night it was, but, uh, this, uh, this man was at the altar area and he had like three of his, 
uh, kids and his wife, and I greeted him. He said he was over from the west coast of, of Florida and all, and he was holding his, uh, his, his, little, uh, his little girl, and he said, she's got a fever. She's really sick. You could tell she was really lethargic, wasn't feeling well. And he said, she's very sick, and i just wondering if you and, and, and the ministry could, could pray for her. And I said, absolutely. And somebody went to get the oil because, you know, we had our platform all uh, reconfigured. And so um, we just prayed a simple prayer. We just said, you know, Lord, touch her in, in, uh, in Jesus' name. And that was it. I mean, it couldn't have been more than 10 seconds. And then, of course, you know, after service, a lot of people milling around. We'd gone here. We'd gone back there. And I went into the second foyer. I mean, it couldn't have been more than 20 minutes later. And he says, he's there with his family in the second foyer over here. And he says, look at my daughter. And she's running all around the second foyer. She's running around. She's high-fiving the other kids. She's having a big time. He goes, when you prayed, she was healed instantly. He said her fever broke. She started feeling good. And we hadn't been able to stop her since. And she was running all over and having a big time and all that. And I thought, isn't that how God works? Sometimes it's just like business as usual, but you don't know behind the scenes what God is doing. And sometimes I think that this is a hindrance to people because they think if it's not an earthquake, that nothing has happened. Sometimes deliverance is disguised as business as usual. The second thing is that sometimes deliverance is disguised as insignificant. It's, dis- it's disguised as being very uh, insignificant. First Samuel 17, we read about David fighting the giant. Nobody, nobody expected deliverance uh, in the form of, of a young boy strolling into camp with a bag of cheese. I mean, nobody, nobody saw this coming. It seemed to be very insignificant. And even, even the birth of Jesus was seemingly so insignificant. I mean, people displaced, having to go back to their uh, their city of origin for the census because the, the, the Romans feel like people aren't paying their taxes. And so they, you know, they've got everybody going back and going back to their home and doing a recount and a, and a census taking. And, and, you know, he goes to Bethlehem and he's got his wife and she's nine months pregnant and they can't find a place to stay. And I mean, it just seems like life in general, a lot of obstacles, things not going right. These are the environments that God works in. I feel like I want to encourage somebody. It may feel like everything is falling apart, but I'm going to tell you something. God is a faithful God and he will bring deliverance. He will bring an answer in the most insignificant of ways. And so you got to remember that your deliverance that you've sought God for may not be visible to you. It may be disguised as, as business as usual or an insignificant event. It was just a small prayer, just a, a small touch, just a small thing. But God works in mysterious ways. Nobody in Egypt expected a little baby floating down the river in a basket to be the next great deliverer. So the question that I, I want to pose to you today, a rhetorical question, is what does your miracle look like? Is it an earthquake? Or is it a baby in a basket or a boy with a slingshot? Things are not always as they appear. I, I've told this story before, but I think it uh, illustrates this point about a lady that was uh, in a 
church in um, Phoenix. I want to say it was Phoenix. It may have been Tulsa, but it was in uh, Arizona. And uh, she she knew that her pastor had had preached against going to casinos, playing the lottery and all that. But she had had a relative that had gone to Vegas and and uh, had won some money, and so she got drawn into it. And she made an agreement that she would only go and play the slot machines. And uh, she wouldn't play anything else because she didn't know how all this stuff works, and she said, I'm not going to get into that. But I... I'm just going to go and put the quarters in and, and, and pull the one-armed bandit, so they, so they say. And um, so she did. She sat there with her little thing, went through all. And she did that the first day and second day. Somewhere along the way in her, her little trip to Vegas, she hit the jackpot in uh, the slot machines. And just, you know, coins started flying. Lights started going off. Woo! You know. And here she is, Pentecostal. She's trying to be incognito. And they're like people, people are coming out of the woodwork and they're taking pictures of her and the manager. And, uh, they, uh, they end up giving her all this money. And she said, I've started feeling a little guilty about it all. So I decided I was going to cash out. And she said, I was nervous. I was going to my, my hotel room and I had all this money on me. And uh, she said, I got onto the elevator, and uh, just before the door shut, these two big men stepped in. And she said, neither one of them were smiling. She said, I'm standing there, little old lady with all this money. And um, they went past her and stood in the back of the, of the elevator, and the door shut, and she said, I'm there trembling. And the elevator doesn't move. And they said, hit the floor. And she said, when they said hit the floor, I threw myself down on the floor. I threw all the money in the air. And she said, you can have it all. Just don't hurt me. And they said, no, we're just saying hit the button. What floor you're going to? The elevator's not moving. They helped her gather all of herself together and they said, are you okay? And, and uh, she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and they helped her. They even walked her to her room. And the next day she got a dozen roses delivered to her room. And each one had a $100 bill wrapped around it. And it said, thanks for the laughs, Michael and Eddie. It was, it was Michael Jordan and Eddie Murphy that she thought was robbing her on the elevator. She said, but now thinking back, I think the Lord did that because I never ever went back to a casino. <laughs> Things are not always as they appear. A blessing can sometimes be disguised as a battle. Abraham taking his boy up the mount. His deliverance was coming up the other side of the mount. This is the way God is so neat because... He many times will work on the other side of the mountain. You're coming up one side and you're in a walk of faith. It's a test. It's a trial. But on the other side of the mountain, your answer is coming up. And you may be going through a test right now and not realizing that it is deliverance in disguise. The thing that I love about this story of the jailbreak of Peter and John was that the Lord told them to go and preach in the temple. 
I mean, after the jailbreak, he says, go to the temple and preach. I believe the Lord was telling the Sanhedrin, don't mess with my boys. This is my work and you can't stop it. Because while the deliverance may be disguised, the testimony can never be camouflaged. I say, while the deliverance may be disguised, why the miracle may be wrapped in an insignificant event. I don't believe the Lord ever wants our testimony to be disguised. The proof is in the pudding. The miracle is in the temple. The evidence is an empty cell. I, I love we, uh, uh, when we go to Israel, of course we can't go right now, but when we go to Israel, they take you to the, the tomb the, the tomb where they believe that Jesus was. And they have all these whole list of different evidences to, to, to say why they believe uh, that this garden tomb is the area where uh, Jesus was, was buried. And, uh, and in, in the tomb, the, the, the stone, there's a big stone. It's on the side. And you can go in it. And when you go in it, you know, this is a real surreal feeling. You're literally sitting in this empty tomb. I don't know if it's the actual one or not, but it certainly feels that way when you're there. There's, I don't know, I think a lot of times you feel confirmation in your spirit about things. You know whether it's real or it's not real. But this place has a real, you don't feel like it's, it's a tourist trap. You really feel like that there was something significant that took place there. So you go inside this, this guard tomb and there's like a wooden plaque on the, uh, it's not a plaque, but it's just a wooden board, but the letters are kind of engraved in it. And it just simply says, he is not here. He is risen. And I mean, it's just like in the most insignificant of areas, it's like there's a bus stop over here where they think the hill Golgotha was, and there's a highway over here. And it's just like a little oasis, like in the middle of this busy bustling city of Jerusalem, and there's this little garden tomb area. But when you go there, it's just this empty tomb. And you find yourself saying, thank the Lord. Isn't God good? He's, it's still the event that has changed the whole world. But here it is in this little small insignificant thing. But the proof is in the pudding. He's not there. I remember the first time we went and saw it. I was so excited. I got on the bus and our guide was not a believer in terms of Christianity. Uh, he was not believing that Jesus was the Messiah, of course, believed in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. And so he says to me as we got on the bus, he was kind of uh, sarcastic. And uh, he would sort of, you know, sort of challenge our our faith once in a while with little digs and stuff, you know. And uh, his name was Amos. And uh, I got on the bus and Amos said, how can you be so excited about seeing where he's not? And I said, the Lord just helped me sometimes. I give a good answer every once in a while. And uh, the Lord just prompted me in my heart. And I just said, without even thinking, I just said, his absence there proves his presence here. <laughs> and he kind of mumbled something and got back to driving the bus, you know. And it, it, but, but when you think about it, the fact that God is not in some things is proof that he is in other things. Oh, hallelujah. That, now, let me break that down to what that means, I think, in, in where we are right now. 
You're not going to see God in every situation going on around us, but you will see God where two or three are gathered together in his presence, in his name. Hallelujah. That's where you're going to find God. The deliverance is the easy part, but our destination after the deliverance is the real test. That's where there's a real test. Where do we go? What do we do with what he has given us? We've all felt the power of God. We've all seen people healed miraculously. But then some of them never go back to church. They say, thanks a lot. It's like drive-by miracles. And then uh, you never see them again. My, my father tells this story. I, I was so young. It was where he pastored in Port St. Joe before our family came here to Palm Bay, Melbourne area in 1971. But he tells this story about a lady in a wheelchair uh, that he went to the house and prayed for her. And she'd been in a wheelchair for many, many years. And again, it was one of those just very simple prayer. And she got up out of the wheelchair. And she said, preacher, God has healed me. She walked all around the house. She said, God has healed me. I'll see you in church on Sunday. He never saw her darken the door of a church. God had miraculously healed her. I'm going to tell you something. God will do his part. The biggest challenge is, what do we do with the miracle? What do we do with the blessing in disguise? I'm going to tell you why God heals. I'm going to tell you why God saves. I'm going to tell you why God does the miraculous. So that you and I have a testimony. You can tell somebody God is real. We didn't just make this stuff up. We didn't just come up with this because we needed some emotional crutch because of some trial we were going through in life. We found a God that's real. Hallelujah. We found a God who you could speak his name at a time of crisis, at a time of emergency, and God was there in a moment, in an instant. Hallelujah. You can speak the name of Jesus. So let your miracle be a blessing. And if it is hidden, so be it. But don't let your testimony be hidden. Shout it from the rooftop. Shout it from the top of the mountain. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. Jesus loves you. Jesus is coming soon. I don't know about you, but I believe we all know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming soon. And the Bible said he's going to come as a thief in the night. Oh, not everybody's going to know it. But the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we which are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And one day every eye will see and every knee will bow. Oh, hallelujah. Why don't we stand to our feet this morning? Let's lift up our hands. Hallelujah. Come on, if you believe God's got a blessing, God's got a deliverance for you. It may be disguised as business as usual. It may be uh, disguised as an insignificant event. It may be disguised as a battle. But God, hallelujah, is working. God is at work. God, hallelujah, is bringing the answer that you have been asking for. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, why don't you take 30 seconds right now and begin to just thank him in advance. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for what I know you've already done. I haven't seen any evidence. It hadn't been confirmed yet. But Lord, by faith, I'm going to go ahead and begin to thank you for the work that I know you've already done. In the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord. You are great and greatly to be praised. Hallelujah. I give thanks and glory unto you, Lord. Woo, hallelujah.
Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Bless the name of Jesus. What a great God you are, Lord. You are worthy of the praises of your people. Hallelujah. Everybody said in Jesus' name.